Welcome to Aging Better in Uncertain Times. I'm Gord Martineau, in studio, alongside Dr. Fabio Varlese. Here, we help you keep informed and up-to-date on the latest in science, medicine, and technology that helps us all age better in these uncertain times. The amount of fat that we eat is the type of fat that we eat, because in that seven-country study, the people who lived the longest, which happened to be in the Mediterranean, they consumed more fat than anyone else in any other country. All of that was related to fat that was being consumed not from animal fat, but from olive oil. Today, we're talking longevity and the Mediterranean diet with Alexandra Kalash, president of the International Longevity Center in Brazil, and Dr. Angelo Aquavista, best-selling author of The Mediterranean Prescription and The Family Table. Information, it's the primary driver in our lives because every decision we make on a daily basis, no matter how big or how small that decision might be at any given time, is based upon the information we have. This becomes much more significant as we move into our later years because three things become our main focus, lifestyle, nutrition, and health. And all three of those things fit under the umbrella of wellness. And that's what we're focusing on today. We are here now to supply the information you need to help you make the best choices to achieve your goals. And today, specifically in terms of longevity, we have the leading experts in the field to offer their advice. And I'll begin with my friend, Dr. Fabio Varlese, the Chief of Staff and Vice President, Medical Affairs, Runnymede Hospital, former Medical Program Director of Acute Care Geriatrics at Baycare Hospital, the Assistant Professor, Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto, specializing in internal medicine and geriatric medicine. So longevity is something that we're particularly interested in, and, and we've had discussions with experts about technology, about immunization, but longevity is something we want to touch on. What are you looking forward to here? Well, as uh, clinicians, um, our focus really is on um, addressing uh, issues related to prevention because mm -hmm. our focus is about quality of life in extending the quality of life in our aging population. And, uh, you know, I like to say that while you're, you focus on that, longevity mm -hmm. is a natural consequence. Mm -hmm. So in our day-to-day -day medical practice, when we counsel and educate our patients, we're really focused on those pearls of wisdom when it comes to shifting uh, lifestyle habits uh, that lead to improved health mm -hmm. that addresses the chronic diseases that from time to time, in fact, could exacerbate and la land you in the hospital. So to prevent them at, at a minimum or, or manage them as well as possible so that the quality of life as you go into your 70s, 80s, possibly 90s is, is, is elevated. And that tends to have an impact on longevity. Okay, let's bring in an expert on longevity, and he is Dr. Alex Kalash. He is the president of the International Longevity Center in Brazil. I mean, he's got a long list of credits. He's been associated with the University of Oxford, uh, epidemiology there, and uh, the Aging Unit, the University of London, the director of the World Health Organization Department of Aging and Life Course. Tell me about your studies into longevity and how significant are your studies and, and are you making headway? I think that we are in general making headways overall globally uh, because aging was not in the radar until very recently. Okay. Uh, I had the 
the honor and the privilege of being the director of the, the World Health Organization from 1995 to 2008, and I have seen over the, that period and ever since an increased interest. And this is because the world is aging. It has become the norm rather than the exception for a few. All right, so, so doctor, we're going through what seems to be a kind of revolution, the longevity revolution, but for many people, adding years to life doesn't necessarily meaning life to years. So happiness is a big factor, would you agree? Yes, we are always in pursuit of happiness, whatever our age. And the important thing here is to consider that life expectancy globally in 1900 was only 35, and now it is approaching 72. Mm -hmm. So it's a much longer, it is longevity. Uh, what has always been the hope of uh, humankind throughout civilization, we now regret that we're aging, as if aging was something bad for us individually or for society. So lifestyle, then, is a, is a big factor. It's one of the pillars of living longer with quality of life. Do you emphasize this in your studies? It's, it's all about lifestyle and nutrition, correct? Yes. I would say that when you present it, you put in this order, uh, lifestyle, nutrition, and health. I would invert that. Health depends on our lifestyle, which includes diet, which includes physical activity, which includes social contacts and social capital. Uh, so health is of paramount importance. You can have all the money in your pocket, but if your health declines, you cannot have quality of life. You know, it's something that, that you know, my mother always said, unless you have good health, you have nothing. And, and that is especially true. Now, do you think with COVID-19 being the number one health factor in the lives of most people today, it's focused their attention. Do you think it has forced many countries and societies to look at the attention they give to their seniors and maybe, you know, adjusting their treatment upwards? I actually think that it has been the other way around. We have never seen so much ageism. We have never seen so much dislike for older people, blaming older people that they are too expensive, go away. This is certainly the message that we see in this country, I'm speaking from Brazil, uh, but we have seen hundreds of thousands of deaths that could have been avoided if the policies were in place in Europe, in Canada, especially for people that live with inequalities, in the United States, that the risk of dying is four times higher if you are black. So I think that we are in a very challenging moment to build the people because of the ages that is prevalent throughout the world. So, Doctor, whatever happened to our respect your elders? Whatever became of that? How did we lose sight of, of having respect and caring for our elders? Uh, in the past, it was very easy to respect the elders. I prefer to call them older persons. It was very easy because they were a small minority, so there would be a huge family. Women were not in the workforce, and therefore it was relatively easy to accommodate and to look after 5% of the population that would be 60 and over. Today in the world, we have 80, 850 million older people, but 30 years from now, there will be 2 billion, 100 million. 
And pay attention, young people, because you may be 30 today, in 30 years, you are going to be another person. So human rights, rights, respect is important, but obviously with the pool of potential carers and the fact that fortunately women have joined the workforce, you don't have in the home, in the family, somebody to provide care to those people that get older and some of them become dependent. So you have found in your studies that we now regard older people I mean, we in general regard older people as being a drain on our resources and our society in general. It's worse than being a drain. They are regarded as dispensable. We don't acknowledge the contribution that older people make to society. And this is the ageist, the ageist attitude that we see prevalent, especially for those that are frail, have mental health problems, especially dementias and Alzheimer's included, and therefore let them go. They have already lived their lives. This is a message that one way or the other, uh, older people have been uh, listening all the time within the context of COVID. So, Doctor, you know as well as anyone, the extent of our opportunities depends largely on one factor, our health. So do you find that helping senior citizens or people who are older to maintain their health and even improve their health as they are aging is an uphill battle because, you know, you, you, you think that our societies regard them as being, uh, you know, uh, a burden. So, you know, that most societies have written them off. That's what your studies have revealed. Well, it's not only that. I think that we have to adopt a life course approach. We have to prepare ourselves to old age. Old age doesn't happen all of a sudden because you turn 60, 67 or 73. We are all aging and therefore lifestyles, the opportunities to look at your health, to prepare yourself to old age, but it also depends on policies. So if we only blame the individual it is your fault because you didn't have the right lifestyle. Well, I couldn't have it. I couldn't have a good diet because I couldn't afford. I knew what to eat, but I didn't have the money to buy what is right to eat. So we have to make efforts for lifestyles to be the right ones. But also, we have to top this up with the right policies that will provide opportunities for everybody to age well, including all the people who continue to age. We're going to bring in Dr. Angelo Aquista. You are a proponent of the Mediterranean diet. You've written a book. You're a native of Sicily, currently living in New York. But you believe that the Mediterranean diet is a, is a prescription for living better. Tell me about it. Well, first, I agree with uh, what the doctors have said regarding longevity. I'd simply like to add that more than uh, smoking and alcohol, obesity is responsible for more morbidity, mortality in the United States than the other two things combined, alcohol and, and smoking. And so uh, the purpose of me writing the book was to emphasize to people the, all the medical complications that can occur with obesity or being overweight. And so the first part of the book deals with educating people about what is, what is the, uh, what, which are the fruits that are better for you. Not all fruits are created equal. Not all vegetables are created equal. Cruciferous vegetables 
are the ones that have conferred the highest protection against cancer and cardiovascular disease. Um, these are all established medical literature in peer-reviewed uh, uh, journals that much of what I say has to do with that, um, uh, with those peer-reviewed journals. What I found was that in the Mediterranean diet, which was first identified in the 1950s by Ansel Keys, he was the first guy that um, um, made a link between diet and longevity mm-hmm. and illness. And what he conducted was the seven countries study where he compared longevity and diet to seven different types of countries. And what he noted, and he proposed, even in the 1950s, and it wasn't really revealed until 15 years ago when I published the book, what he said, it's not the amount of fat that we eat, it's the type of fat that we eat. Because in that seven-country study, the people who lived the longest, which happened to be in the Mediterranean, um, and particularly the people in Crete, they consumed more fat than anyone else in any other country, and that included Western countries and Northern European countries. Um, all of that was related to um, fat that was being consumed not uh, from animal fat, but from olive oil. Mm. Most of the Mediterraneans derive their fat because at least it, it, you know, about 30, 40 years ago, there was a great deal of poverty in Sicily and in southern Europe. Mm-hmm. And most people couldn't afford meat. And the Mediterranean diet was a diet of necessity, which included legumes, a lot of vegetables, nuts, fish, a little bit of meat, more fish, and a lot of olive oil. And the recent studies that have come out, again, in the New England Journal and others, they've demonstrated that people on the Mediterranean diet, and one study actually, which was supposed to go for five years, um, it was cut short after two and a half years because they noticed a difference between the Western diet, how people were getting sick and dying, compared to the Mediterranean diet, how people were getting sick and dying. They noticed a significant difference, and they stopped the study. In that study and others that followed, it showed that the Mediterranean diet is the diet that confers longevity. I I, I mean, this has been said over and over and over again. And the reason for that is because the Mediterranean diet, if followed correctly, you're more likely, uh, you're less likely to be obese, which, as I said earlier, is probably more important than smoking and alcohol in terms of morbidity and mortality. So, so doc, Dr. Acquista, would you say that the Mediterranean diet really was a happenstance of the result of the Second World War, which, which meant that, that, that fewer foods were available to people, and, and so they had to resort to what was available, and specifically in, in the Mediterranean, uh, lifestyles had changed and, and forced people to consider alternatives. Am I right or wrong? Well, interestingly enough, it has more to do with all the benefits of being in the, uh, in the, what we call the fertile crescent, which is the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Because the Mediterranean has varying temperatures at varying altitudes, it is the home of some of the most um, uh, nutritious foods 
almonds, they grow wild in Sicily. Walnuts, you don't even have to cultivate them. They grow wild. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a function not only of World War II, but it's also a function of what the people in their land had. Right. And what they had was poverty. And it wasn't just World War II. Uh, my father would speak to me and my grandparents would speak to me in the early 1900s how uh, difficult it was. Um, many, many people, and I'll tell you one story which is very interesting. Okay. Um, uh, they couldn't afford meat. My father was a butcher. A guy had, there was a family of eight. He would come to my father to buy bones so that he could make a soup. Right. Why? Because he didn't have money. And that was true for most of the town, from the town that I come from. Mm-hmm. So it was also a matter of what's available, um, what resources you have to acquire it. And I'll give you another interesting comparison. Recently, I asked the patient, um, do you eat fish, uh, much fish? He goes, yeah, how often? Every two weeks or so, I go to McDonald's and I get a fish or cake, <laughs> which is a fried piece of fish. That's, yeah. that's, that's, first of all, that's not enough fish. Yeah, Second no. of all, it's fried, right. you know? Right. And, and so when I talk about obesity, I, I do say that it is multifactorial. Mm-hmm. So if obesity is multifactorial and it affects longevity, these are the factors that affect you. Number one, genetics. There's very little you can do about genetics. God bless you with good genetics, that's great. So, you, you know, you have what you were born with. But there are other things that have an impact, and that is culture. In our culture, in the, our American culture now, eating down, sitting down at the table and making food like we do in Sicily, you sit down at a table for four hours for lunch, and everybody takes pride in preparation. And you know and something, will, doctor, that is something that people lament, people that I know say, I wish to heck we could have a dinner like the Italians do or the Europeans do, where we actually sit down around the table, have conversations, enjoy our food, and it takes a couple of hours rather than 15 minutes, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because if you're going to have, um, you know, quick food, you're going to have processed food, which is, has yeah. a problem all on itself. So the first is called, uh, after genetics, it's culture. Mm-hmm. And as the doctors have mentioned, uh, thirdly, is your lifestyle. Are you getting enough exercise? I tell my patients, if you want to live long, provided that you understand, I tell them that your genes are your genes. I can't do anything about those. Yeah. But if you want to live longer, exercise and eat well. Eat the Mediterranean diet. And so that's the, that's the third component. Yep. Um, and, and, and then people have to take responsibility upon themselves. And unfortunately, and I see this even in New York, um, uh, people just can't afford sometimes mm-hmm. the good food. You know something, Doctor? I mean, you can, you can compare this situation, let's say, or, or an insight into it might be, you know, if you've got 10 bucks in your pocket, you're not doing so well. Uh, are you going to go to the supermarket, or are you going to go and get two hamburgers for $2? I mean, you know, two fast food burgers. That seems to be a big part of the, the dietary problem in the United States. Agreed. Agreed. Um, that, you know, there is this income uh, uh, inequality that exists not only in the United States, but everywhere else in yeah. other places, even more exaggerated, mm-hmm. that prevents people from being able to eat an adequate diet. And this is true amongst our minorities. Yeah. Many of, my, of our minorities 
um, have difficulty um, uh, with income. Uh, they can't go out and buy. You know, the most expensive thing you can buy is a piece of fish. You, you try to buy a Bronzino in New York, uh, it's like $20 a pound. Yeah. People can't afford that. No. Um, and then the other thing is the culture. Um, uh, you have to love food as a way of life. And this is what the Italians do. Um, uh, and if you could do that, you then will take an interest in preparing fresh food, not having processed food, staying away from the ham that you buy at the delicatessen, and making your own food at home. I have a prominent Italian with me right now, and he knows quite a bit about the Mediterranean diet, uh, Dr. Fabio Varlesi. And uh, he, you know, we talked about the, Amer- the, the Mediterranean diet, and he knows that you're the guy, but he also has some insights on it as well. Fabio. Well, um, I would say that, uh, first of all, all of the things that have been mentioned are, are fantastic, mm-hmm. and uh, they do translate into advice to people that want to make a difference. But yeah. when it comes to the economics, it's, it's a real issue, uh, especially in certain uh, places of North America, but especially around the world in third world countries and what have you. Um, but um, two things have been mentioned. One is the aspect of genetics. And um, there's a study, the New England uh, um, Centenarian Study uh, principal investigator being Dr. Thomas Pearls, I, I guess a colleague in geriatrics at Boston. And, um, you know, it is true that exemptional longevity seems to run in families and um and uh, disability tends to be happening towards the early mid 90s of these these individuals but um but we we can't change that what we can have an impact on is exactly what's being spoken about today and that um mediterranean diet for sure is probably the diet that has lasted throughout the last decades and has always reconfirmed that in fact uh those basic pearls uh, are truly at the basis of longevity and the prevention of chronic diseases, which has been a major topic in our previous podcast. So it's crucial. And then there's, for example, the blue zones in the world where areas in the world where, um, you know, it seems that uh, diet does play a significant role. These areas are places like Italy, where it yep. kind of started in Sardinia, uh, certain villages around Nuoro, uh, but then uh, uh, clearly Okinawa, Japan, many studies have been done there. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica and the uh, Greek island of Ikaria. But what's interesting is that even the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California, they live in the United States, so they're surrounded by the environment, the culture, and everything yep. else. And they seem to have particularly uh, a longevity that the rest of the Americans don't see. And diet seem, seems to be like the central point. Some final thoughts now with Dr. Varlese's prescription to aging better. Dr. Fabio Varlese, a great discussion, and, and we learned quite a bit. I mean, we knew about the Mediterranean diet, but a lot of things were reinforced. And nutrition, of course, is key to longevity. And we learned about longevity, and we also learned how important diet really is. Not just a lot of talk, it's actual fact. 
Yes, definitely. And first of all, I'd like to actually even praise, you know, um, the Canada Food Guide 2019 because there's been significant changes in the recommendations. So in Canada, I've seen some some very positive changes, and I and I and I'm proud of that. Is but, it more reflective of something like the Mediterranean oh yes, diet? Indeed, right. Okay. Indeed, there is a focus on whole grains, uh, on uh, healthy fats, mm-hmm. uh, which tend to be plant-based, like the olive oils, the nuts, and the seeds. But but fish in inappropriate amounts. Certainly, a minimization of uh, animal-based products, mm-hmm. specifically, you know, red meats, uh, but very very moderate amounts of even poultry and what have you, um, minimizing also dairy, really a focus on the vegetables, the, the fruits, the whole grains, nuts and seeds, really. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, you want to do something else? Uh, we can, I can yeah, we continue. Can edit, yeah. Okay, so let's, you're going to edit, it. okay. Yeah. Um, the evidence of, of uh, how diet makes a significant impact also comes from various places in the world because the future of medicine is interesting. Genetics play an important role because we start talking about things like nutrigenomics. In fact, you know, every single diet doesn't fit every individual. Yeah. Uh, but what's, what's come across through the blue zones is that multiple countries in different areas of this the world. This is something I found interesting, that yeah. what you pointed out, there's various blue zones that, that exist in the world and how longevity is a big factor because of the diets they have, correct? Yes, well, definitely one of the predictors of longevity in these areas is definitely diet-related, and, and it tends to coincide with what the Mediterranean diet is all about. Yeah. So that's the simple thing. But there's also many many other factors that play a role in those areas. There's no doubt that there's a genetic component always because good, you know, genes of longevity seem to run with the same families. But more importantly, it's the focus on on placing the elders at the center of families, um, making sure that they are valued, uh, that they are directly participating in in family activities, Um, um, community involvement. These blue zones uh, are really characterized by direct involvement. And then obviously things like less smoking, um, uh, physical activity. Uh, So the um, uh, living in environments that are certainly not as stressful as the West, that's a a fact. And socializing is also a factor, which I didn't hadn't really considered. You've got to be able to interact with other people. That keeps you healthy mentally. As as COVID was uh, about to unfold, my biggest concern was the long-term care facility, facilities and the uh, uh, also the uh, assisted living homes, seniors' mm-hmm. apartments, because I knew that at some point uh, there was going to be isolation, and I was already thinking about creative means and ways to still connect with families while they remained isolated uh, and uh, including video calls and uh, um, these are, are, are things that are now a necessity during COVID. Questions about aging better can be emailed to info at agingbetter.ca or by visiting our website at agingbetter.ca. Aging Better in Uncertain Times, brought to you by Delos, Runnymede Health, Jewel 88.5, L'Oreal, La Roche-Posay, Vichy, Avicana, and Sanofi Pasteur, in part through an educational grant. Be sure to drop in for your next doctor's visit on Jewel 88.5, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. or at Jewel885.com. 
Until next time, I'm Gord Martineau with Dr. Fabio Varlese, along with producers Dominic Shulo and David Sirsta. Be well and stay safe.